Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each month will consist of two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast put out by the American Council of the Blinds Employment Committee. My name is Peter Altschul, the committee co-chair, and we're delighted to interview Richard Rurita. Richard, what is your current job title? Hi, Peter. My my title is Digital Content Manager with Career Connect, a program of APH Connect Center. And welcome, Richard. We're delighted to have you uh, as as our guest. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we talk about your career trajectory, let's talk about your upbringing. What, as you were growing up, how were you connected, if at all, to the world of work? You know, that's a very good question. And, and not long ago, maybe a day or two ago, I, I told this story to a lot of high school students. I, I spoke about uh, my career path. I was born legally blind. I went through mainstream. And at the age of 16, I got my first job. And it was uh, working in fast food. And I come from a family, uh, being blind, the only blind guy in my family, of, of family members who nobody went to college. My mom, my dad, and my brother uh, had successful careers but didn't need to go to college. Uh, so college was never a big discussion at the dinner table. And so when I turned 16, I said, well, I want to work. And I did. I worked in fast food. I got the training I needed. And it was the best job, Peter, and the worst job I ever had. And I'll tell you why that sounds contradicting. When you're blind and in your high school, you'll take any job you can get. At least I did 30 years ago. And so off I went to sweep and mop the floors, scrub the toilets, uh, put the baked potatoes in the baked potato thing, make fries. And it was great. I had a paycheck. I wasn't getting money from doing chores or helping out wherever. I was getting an honest-to-God paycheck. It was great, but the the negative to that in my 16-year-old mind was I gave up my my ability to have my weekends, my autonomy. I had to go to work. I had to wear a, a, a uniform and polish my shoes. So for me, it kind of sucked. But at the same time, here I am employed getting five twenty-five an hour and, and looking cool. So uh, I will finish by saying I had an epiphany six months into the job going, you know, Richard, having to talk to myself as I'm scrubbing the toilet, the, the tables after people with French fries and ketchup going, you, you really do need to think about going to college. So I had that discussion with my parents and off to college I went four years later and I received my bachelor's degree in vocational counseling. So I first became a rehab counselor. So getting back to that, that fast food job of yours, how did you find that job as a high school student? Very good question. I I did some networking on campus through my career center in high school. And ultimately, uh, because I grew up in Southern California, I went down to the Braille Institute, which is a service provider that helps blind people find jobs and get independence and and all those things that we're often familiar with. And so I went and talked to a woman named Cora Hefley, who essentially was a job developer. uh, And she helped me and several of my friends get our first job. She said, "Here, here are some job leads. Uh, One of them is uh, Carl's Jr., which is similar to McDonald's. And uh, so the next thing I knew, I had an interview. 
I didn't know what an interview was. I didn't know what a resume was. We didn't have transition programs like we do now. So I just did cold, cold interview. And, and I had to, I remember some of the questions were, tell us about yourself. What do you do? How, how do you, why do you qualify for this job? And I stumbled and stammered and I probably had practice, but six weeks later I had the job. Well, you must've done something right. I must have. Yes. You must have done something right. Because it wasn't lo- handed to me. It was, I had to earn that job. And I, I think the the, the the polling to drive home was I, I had to really dig deep and say, well, I'm doing the, I'm helping my mom and dad prepare meals at home. I'm scrubbing the potatoes and I'm peeling the carrots. So, well, I'll probably be doing that on the job here. So I talked about those, what we now know as transferable skills. Right. Right. Well, good for you. Good for you as, as a high school student. Um, so how, how, how many years did you work or how many summers did you work for that? Uh, was it Carl's Jr., I guess? Carl's Jr. was my first job, and it was a great job for six months. And then I realized as I was becoming a junior in high school, I really don't want to work in fast food. There's not enough money in the world that'll let me stay here. Back then, five twenty-five an hour minimum wage. Uh, it was great. I, I soon went to uh, work and volunteer uh, in recreation and working with adults with uh, disabilities in the city of Whittier, where I grew up. So I did a lot of volunteering uh, at youth programs and with the city. And got some internships with the city of Whittier and with another agency working with blind youth. And, and that's where my passion was. And I was getting then um, four, three, four hundred dollars a month on an honorarium while I was putting myself through college. So let's talk about your college experience. Uh, uh, what did you learn about the world of work through your college experience? What skills did, did you transfer from your college experience to the world of work? I think it was a it was a discipline and and knowing that when college isn't like high school when you had a deadline you had a deadline and even though you're disabled and you can ask for extra extra test time it doesn't transfer over into the work world when you have a deadline you don't get extra time like you do in college so I think the first six months of having my job as a rehab counselor, even though I had work experience, was uh, was difficult because I lost the autonomy. I had to work nine to five. I had to get to work. I had to be at places on time. And fortunately, I'm punctual, but it was more of just not having the time to do all the other things I want to do, like roller skate, ski, uh, have fun, you know, and, and, and go out and live life. So I had to become an adult at uh, in my twenties to pay bills, to find my own apartment. And I, and I moved from Southern California to Northern California. Uh, even though I was scared, I did it. I pushed myself out of my comfort zone. And it really, I think that first six months was an eye opener, pardon the pun. And it really helped me uh, become successful in my career. I had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and ultimately I found mentors and, and coworkers who saw where, saw me where they were 20 years earlier and, and mentored me. So let's talk about that, that six-month period you talked about when you did all those new things in your life. Why or how did you succeed? And talk about those mentors you found during over the, you know, that, that six-month period to get you to that new space. I think the simple answer is why I succeeded because I, failure was something I, I, I just wasn't an option. I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to go back home. I didn't want to look bad in the eyes of my family. Um, And so I just naturally gravitated towards adults who are blind, who were rehab counselors, who who said, hey, Richard, here's what you need to do. I remember a a good friend of mine, uh, Tony Lewis, um, he said, hey, Richard, you're going to come with me this Friday afternoon and talk to high school students. There's 30 of them uh, and and they want to hear about rehab. And, And at that time, 
20 years ago, I was scared out of my mind. I did not like public speaking. I'm an introvert. Uh, public speaking has always been a difficult thing for me to do. And he didn't give up on me. He says, you know, it might be rough at first, but you'll get this. And, and sure enough, two years later, I was doing presentations all over the state uh, about rehab and the significance and the importance of it. But he believed in me and he'd give me tips and and, and another uh, colleague of ours, Terry, she, she supported us too. And she said, Richard, here's what you do. And they, just, they didn't give up. They believed in me and they gave me tips and suggestions along the way. And, and when you get that from adults, uh, peers who are blind, you, you really, uh, I took it to heart and I was very thankful. So talk about how te technology fit into all of this. This is a while back, but how did technology and uh, technology literacy fit into all the, all the stuff that you were doing? You know, that's a good question. At the time, I was, I'd consider myself a high partial, so I wore bifocals. And uh, I, since then, have lost more vision. I have very little vision in my right and only eye. Um, so at the time, I was wearing bifocals. At the time, I was using Zoom text. And I was getting by. And Zoom text had app readers, so I could read long paragraphs. And about eight years ago, in 2012, when I lost more vision and I had a hemorrhage, I had to uh, take the JAWS screen reader fast track and just really take a deep dive. Prior to then, it was very topical. So I had to learn. I had to learn Microsoft Office. I had to learn the evolving programs that that were out then and that are out now. Uh, and right now, I, I'm, I'm learning Teams, and mm -hmm. and, and that's, a, that's a beast right now with JAWS. But you just have to be creative. You have to be uh, digitally literate, and you have to be – I tell people all the time, no matter what job you have, even if you're working in fast food, you still have to do a time card on Excel. So you have to learn your computers. You have to do homework on the weekends and learn, find a buddy to teach you, get post-employment services of rehab and just double down and learn it because uh, the world isn't going to be kind to you if, if you have excuses. So how did you learn that stuff? I mean, what, how, how did you specifically uh, carve out time or find the time or whatever to learn those skills? I'm stubborn. I hate to fail, fail, and I, I don't like to lose. I'm an Aries, so I'm, I'm real competitive. So I, I, I just forced myself. I had to concentrate. Uh, I, I go to online forums. I go to online lists. Uh, I, I just find ways. Uh, I, right now, there's podcasts, uh, tons of podcasts. Freedom Scientific has podcasts with screen readers and teams and with SharePoint and with everything under the sun. So I, I listen to the podcast. I'll read the transcripts when I don't have as much time. And I just... Uh, find people and, and barter with them. Hey, I'll bake you some cookies if you teach me how to, you know, learn this product, whatever it, whatever it is you do. And because I work in the business of blindness, I work with blind people. I, I, I just happen to know a lot of people. Uh, and the other thing I'll say about that, Peter, is I've been a member of the American Council of the Blind since 1998. So just networking, knowing people in, in, in our community has been very supportive. So how long were you a rehab counselor? I was a rehabilitation counselor from 2001 to 2009, and then I went on to become uh, basically the past 11 years, I've been a transition specialist where I've worked with high school students in residential and non-residential programs on all the pre-employment transition programs. So those jobs were working at the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco at Junior Blind of America in Los Angeles, and up until about two months ago, Society for the Blind here in San, uh, Sacramento, where I ran a program called Careers Plus, uh, and evolved into working for APH uh, a year ago on contract and becoming full-time with them just uh, a month ago. So let's talk about um, those three jobs that you mentioned. Um, 
how are those each of those jobs similar to each other and how are they different? When I uh, was offered the opportunity to apply and, and uh, become director of community services at the Lighthouse, I knew a lot of people at the Lighthouse because I was the rehab counselor who referred to them. So they knew me, they knew my work ethic, they knew I worked hard and late into the evening. And so they said, well, uh, come and work for us. And that was a great experience because I learned how to be, be a manager. I, I learned how to supervise people, what worked and what didn't work. And and, and that was a great training grounds for me. And I, I spent almost two years working there before I was recruited to work at Junior Blind. And again, I, I got adopted into an even bigger program where I ran residential programs all over California from Sacramento to San Francisco to LA and San Diego. So I had to manage uh, pods of staff in different regions and you have to be analytical. You have to be good time management. You have to be a good uh, leader and you have to balance your life. So I, I got a lot of work experience there working for a huge agency based out of Los Angeles uh, with like a $20 million budget annually. Um, and then working for Society for the Blind when I came to Sacramento four or five years ago, I, I kind of took a step back. I took a pay cut. I um, I realized I was working too many hours and I was not having a good work-life balance. So I, I, I really had to, I stopped working for six months, which is kind of ironic and, and kind of against everything I grew up with. And so I, I, I took stock of where I was. I traveled. I, I took what I call a, a, my own sabbatical. And then I worked at Society for the Blind for a much smaller organization, but one that had really good work-life balance. And they let me build and create a, a program from the scratch. And, and I loved it. And I still love it. And I, I miss it, but I, I, I'm, I, I've planted the seeds for them to do what they're doing good at now. So let's talk about your transition to into management and to uh, managing people. Um, how did you develop those skills? And let's let's go back to your high school and college days for starters. Did you develop any of those skills earlier in life? Were there things that you did that prepared you to be a manager or supervisor? When I was in high school uh, and primarily my first two years of community college, I, I it took me about nine years to go through college, Peter, because I worked a lot and I traveled sure. a lot. And so I, I worked a lot. I worked for a lot of programs. So I was supervised by a lot of good people in, in the community sector and recreation sector. So I got a lot of good influencers out there of what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I, I just looked up to those people. That some of them were sighted and some were blind, but most were sighted. But I got a good work ethic from them. And um, I wouldn't say so much in high school or college because I was a very shy kid. I kept my nose to the book and, and kept did my own thing. Uh, and when I wasn't at college or school, I was working. So that's why it took me. But I think I got more of my management experience from on the job when I started working at the Lighthouse, um, when I had the, the first day, manage people. And we had to downsize and I had to let people go. And it was it was difficult. So was, was that part of your job to give the bad news to the folks who, who were being laid off since you were? Yes. In, in uh, yes. Uh, you had to let people go because they, they're, they didn't mix with what the company uh, goals were and or because of a certain grant and couldn't pay that salary anymore. We had to say, well, we're cutting your hours. And, and when the boss comes to you and says, well, this is your person, you have to give them the news. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm okay. I guess this is why you're paying me. And, and you know, so you have to do it stoically and you have to do it respectfully and, and, and still well in, in, in an encouraging way. And how did you, how did you learn to do that? I mean, I know it's an awkward, you're sort of thrown off the, the, the dock sounds like into the deep end of the, whatever analogy you want to use into the pool. How did you 
find the, you know, the extroverted courage uh, skills to do that. I think over the course of being a rehab counselor and having tough conversations with consumers who had unrealistic expectations or who had issues that you had to deal with on uh, on the fly, you learn you learn by experience. I mean, it's great to have all these degrees, but you really learn from work experience and from networking with your coworkers about hey, how do you deal with this situation? I think one of the coolest things I had happened to me when I was working at the lighthouse was uh, we had, we, we were, uh, we are the lighthouse is a national industries for the blind agency. So we, we, uh, they sent some of us to Washington DC to do an effective management course. So how to be manage up and manage down. And, and we learned a lot of scenarios. We did a lot of role playing uh, of, we had six courses to attend over the course of six months. And we learned a lot from that, a lot from that. And, and we were in the room with other managers, new uh, from all over the United States, and we were all learning from each other. How so? You, you took these really good training courses. How did the lighthouse culture, uh, or uh, how well did that culture support what you learned? I think at the time I didn't appreciate how well it supported what I learned. But again, it was a part of the 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 person who I am now. Had I not that. I don't know how good of a manager I would have been if I had went from rehab to junior blind to society for the blind. It was, it was a tough 18 months because I learned a lot about myself. I, I, I wasn't just talking to my consumers. I was talking to people whose you know, lives were on the line in terms of you know, employed or unemployed and, and, and so many other things. So maybe 10 years ago, I didn't appreciate it as much as I appreciate it now, but you know, with age comes wisdom. And so I think uh, with, with just looking back and reflecting, I, I really appreciate every job I've had. So you, you supervised uh, blind folks and sighted folk. Yes. Can you talk about um, if, if, if there are any differences or what differences exist between managing those two groups? Uh, and uh, I think many sighted folks are, are not used to being managed by a, a blind person. So how, how did that work? You know, when I worked at the residential program in, in Los Angeles, I think that I had the most amount of staff I supervised who were cited because a lot of them were our, our residential counselors who were drivers who would get our students to their job sites and or to field trips. And, uh, you know, honestly, it really wasn't it really wasn't the, there wasn't a huge difference as I think about it and, and how to manage people. You, you just had to find equity in the job. When you had your blind dorm counselors, you wanted to make sure they were pulling their weight and doing as much work as the drivers were. And so we try, it was trying to assure uh, and, and, and align our staff into the philosophy. Hey, look, just because you drive doesn't mean this blind guy sitting next to you, who's a dorm counselor and who knows the stuff can't, be just as, as significant as your role. So trying to really uh, underscore the importance of, of peer mentoring and what blind people bring to the table as employees, even though they're not drivers or they can't fill out certain forms on their own, there's a lot of value. So we had to find uh, the balance and make sure everyone's doing the same amount of work and have the same amount of equity in their job. Or if, if not the same quantity, the same sort of quality, right? You know, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you talked about um, getting uh, as you moved up uh, to to after working for the lighthouse, you got this mammoth job where you're working all over the state with people all over the state. How was that different from working in the lighthouse? What what skills did you learn uh, at that job? 
Well, I love the travel. So the the opportunity arose where to every week I uh, I lived in the Bay Area at the time, but every other week I was either up here in Sacramento uh, growing our program, hiring staff, or down on our huge campus. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, managing those programs. And then maybe for nine days a month, I was home, but then I was going to our office in Oakland. Again, I think I learned time management. I learned to uh, delegate to my staff, decided in blind, hey, I, we need to work on these projects. These are our goals. And, and just be a real effective communicator because we weren't, um, you know, this was pre-pandemic and we weren't doing Zoom, but we had to, we weren't doing face-to-face meetings. I had to really be clear during staff meetings on the phone hey, this is what we're doing. This is when it needs to be done by. Uh, The buck stops with me and I have to let our boss know, you know, we're meeting our goals. We're serving the amount of people we want to serve and and impacting people's lives positively. So talk about an experience uh, at these two jobs that was especially challenging. Uh, Explain the situation. uh, What happened? As, uh, what did you do? What, what, what were the results and what did you learn from the experience? I, I, I'll, I'll reflect upon the job in Los Angeles because it was one of the bigger jobs I've had. And when you run a residential program for students in the summer that goes from June through August, it spans eight weeks. But you start planning now. You start planning in November, December, January. And you get your staff lined up. You get your your. You start recruiting students. You get your summer staff, and you and you get all your com- program components. You, you make sure they're getting all their doctor's appointments and physicals. And so there, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And you really don't get time off until like October for a week before you do it all over again. So in April, uh, my lead staff came to me and says, "Richard, I, I I'm just not going to do it." And he was my he was my program person for that summer. And when he had so much institutional knowledge and he uh, was giving two weeks notice and, and he, he's like, I'm sorry. And he just walked away. So I had to pick up the pieces. I had to reassign staff. Some are brand new. I said, hey, I trust you. You're going to need to uh, do, do a solid on this. And you just have to trust people, train them up, trust them and hope for the best. And as I was running that program and running programs in Sacramento, and you just have to train, train, train. And and, uh, you know, say a little prayer if, if you do and, and just hope it all works together. Communicate. And, you know, those are 80, 100 hour weeks, but you had to do what you had to do to make sure kids and youth got the, the training they needed to be successful. And uh, so you lost this key staff person. Uh, um, how did you or if at all, were you able to sort of get some of that institutional wisdom documented before he left? Yeah, we, we certainly reprioritize what we had to do. So it was a lot of conversations. Okay, what are we going to do in this place? Where are the work experiences and, and the employers who liked this last summer? Because uh, I need to give that to Mark because Mark's going to take over your job, Ethan. So tell me about uh, tell me about these and, and uh, hiring drivers and uh, recruiting additional staff. So it, it, a lot of communication, a lot of documenting and, this, and, and just grabbing all that before he, he had to leave. And what were the, you know, so you, you, you weathered this crisis. What were, what were the results? You know, you did all this stuff, you're communicating and so on and so forth. What were the results? I think it was successful because uh, as we reflect, we, we got the right people in place. Uh, the program had a lot of uh, respect from former students who wanted to come back and be staff from a lot of 
uh, existing staff who wanted to return. A lot of our staff were were uh, paraprofessionals or uh, school aides during the school year, and they would come and be our residential storm staff during the summer or on some of the weekend outings we did. So we we had enough. Uh, assets in place, but this key person left with a lot of institutional knowledge. So everyone just had to pitch in and give an extra 10% and um, worked. You just, when you love something enough and you have enough rapport, you, you all throw it, you throw your heart into it and it all worked out. So I'm curious about the sabbatical you took. Uh, uh, that's uh, not discouraged generally. And yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a risk to do as a blind person because it's a little harder to get a job uh, as a blind person than as a non-blind person. So talk about what you did during that sabbatical, what you learned from the experience, and uh, what, what happened as a result. Um, before I address it, I, I will say that, as you said, you know, leaving comfortable jobs or jobs in general is not a good thing. Uh, I remember when I left the state uh, and I was a rehab counselor and everyone looked at me like I was upside down or crazy mm-hmm. because yeah. you're leaving a state job and you're only 36. What are you, crazy? I'm like, like yeah. probably, but I don't realize this at 36. At, at 47 or 50, I might realize that. But um, no, I... I, I look at the uh, the work I was doing at that job and, and I loved it. It was great, but it was just killing me. I I was unhealthy. I was eating poorly. I was, uh, I'm an active person. I like to get out and walk and hike, but I just didn't have the opportunity to do that. I was uh, working. I kid you not, 70, 80 hours a week. And sometimes the residential program, um, I, I remember getting the knock one evening at midnight in the residential and, and I'm like, oh, okay, what students are fighting? What do I need to do? And it wasn't the students. It was two staff who had a difference who I had to break up. I'm like, really guys, you're waking me up because your staff, I'm expected to be wake up for the kids if they're fighting, but not the adults. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That's when it hit me. I'm like, you know, I'm working way too much. And when people called in sick, you had to not only be the director, but you had to be the classroom teacher. And you had to find a bus route to get them there if the driver was incoming that day. So I was just... I was burning at both ends the candle and I said, you know, I, I can't do this forever. So I gave them, uh, they didn't want me to leave and I gave them like four months notice and they were gracious about it. And um, I took, I, I just said, you know, I'm going to make this work. I don't know what's coming next. Maybe I'll go back to the state. And I had already told the Sacramento society for the blind said, Hey, I really like what you've done. Um, if you ever want me to come and build a program, let me know. So thankfully I had a good rapport in the, in the community and I just took time off. I went to Italy. I went to Hawaii. I went uh, canoeing and kayaking. Just had a ball. I just had fun uh, and started applying for state jobs about four months into my sabbatical. And, well, maybe I should grow up and be realistic. And about two months later, the Society for the Blind approached me and says, well, if you want to help us build a program from the, from the ground up, you've got it. Um, you're not going to get the salary near where you had before, but you have a job. And I said, you know what? That's fine. That's all I need. And I built it into a really good program. And here we go five years later and it's thriving. Well, I don't think we have time to, to, to discuss that particular program. Actually we do. Um, So we can't talk about it in great detail, but sort of talk about the process of building that program. Uh, what Careers Plus uh, became was a program for blind high school students and youth to uh, learn about what's life going to be like 
after high school and become successful. And I think one of the unique tenets of it is that all the other programs I ran were were sponsored and by the Department of Rehabilitation. So you had to have a case. And a lot of kids should have cases at 14 and they don't. So we couldn't turn people away because I couldn't say, hey, Peter, you come for free. And then, hey, uh, Brooke, you have to pay because rehab doesn't want that. You're either all on the same page or you're not. So I said to our CEO, I said, hey, look, you need to help me find funding because I'm not going to turn kids away. I want to do a free model where we bring in kids no matter what. And she did. She came out with a $100,000 grant that really funded our first year. And it really underscored that. What, what I did to start that program to answer your question was a needs assessment. We went out into the community. I knew a lot of the teachers, the visually impaired and the mobility instructors here in town. I said, hey, we want to start a program that's local. Unlike what I did around the state, these are going to be local assets and local resources. So I, I used those strengths to build Careers Plus and um, they just bought into it. They said what the, what they needed. Um, they also said the program should be free or low cost, have a space for the kids to come and gather. Uh, we don't need them to be residential programs because, you know, Junior Blind was already doing that. They already had assets in place. So we 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 built it. And uh, and if you build it, they will come. And, and, and they came, they did. That's terrific. Uh, one final question for you. And it's a question I ask almost everybody. What advice would you give to your 16-year-old self, given all the experience you've had? Don't be shy and bashful. I tell that to high school students. We're in the, you can't afford to be shy and bashful as a blind kid. Uh, you have to learn quickly to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Build that confidence. I, I, the more you can get blind peers and mentors at an early age and support your success and tell you when things aren't going well, to give you having those honest conversations, the more successful you're going to be, the more chances will come to you. Thank you so much for this interview. It's, I, I've learned a lot and I hope that uh, the listeners have as well. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And and uh, I love to come back again and talk more about Career Connect. We will we will try to figure something out. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time. 